This podcast is brought to you by Central, helping schools work smart. You know, when children come to year one, if you cannot read, I'll give you more reading so I can get to make your make your life more miserable. So year two, year two, we do the same thing. You know how many children get disengaged after year four, year five? You know that, right? You know how many children? I mean, you've been to school. That's Yong Zhao reflecting on some of the perhaps less effective approaches to teaching and learning. To hear about what works better or how we can create a paradigm shift, keep listening. Yong is my guest today on Central Station. Hello, I'm Colin Klupik. Yong Zhao is a Federation Distinguished Professor in the School of Education at the University of Kansas and a Professor in Educational Leadership at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education. He's published many books, articles and papers and is quite outspoken on ways to avoid looking to the past and instead looking to the future for ways to improve education. Yong is a keynote speaker at the 2021 Western Australian Secondary School Executives Association Conference, where he'll be talking about reaching for greatness, personalisable education for all. I caught up with Yong before the conference to find out what he means by that and where his thinking comes from. We started by uncovering what many would think is a rather controversial view of the international standardised test we know as PISA. I've noticed from uh, one of your videos that you have on your website, and and I asked this question purely just to set the scene for our listeners because this is reasonably controversial. You had a debate back uh, back in 2018 about PISA where one of your comments was you said it had been quite transformational but in a disastrous way and that it creates a fantasy of excellence. Now, you know, I, I listened to that and I thought, oh, okay, that's pretty strong. Let's see where we go with this. Now, I don't necessarily want to focus on PISA in this interview. That's not the point of it, but it's just to give people a sense of some of the views that you might have. Is this the kind of thing that makes you think that it's important that we need something like a paradigm shift in education? Yeah, I mean, I think they, um, I'm glad you paid attention to that because um, PISA has uh, caught the attention of uh, national governments in at least over 70, nearly 80, you know, educational systems around the world. It was created around, you know, like 1999 or some sometime. So when the world was moving forward and trying to develop a different kind of education, what I, you know, would call a paradigm shift, but we are having this international tests to drive everybody backwards. And even, even if you created, a, a, you know, let's say a model of excellence, even if you were right, you think Shanghai or Finland may be the best education. Remember, they got to be the best because they worked over the past 30, 40 years. So even if as a country, Australia or Western Australia, even if you learned uh, to be Shanghai, and let's say you become number one, like Shanghai 10 years ago, that was uh, like 40, 50 years ago. That was a simple logic, you know, how, how could you, how could you do that? It's just, it's just simple, simple stupidity, you know, just anyway, so that's my, my, my view to say, when we need to invent something new in the future, you keep referencing people to the past. And that's why you say that we're, in, in doing so, we're, we're actually driving students backwards. We are. We are driving education systems backwards. You know, but PISA claims to say we're, we're measuring 21st century skills, but there's no evidence. There's no empirical evidence to say you're measuring that. You know, actually, if you did go back to say 20 years ago, the first groups of PISA takers, are they doing better than those uh, uh, who didn't, you know, do well on the test? You know, those who did better, we have no evidence. You know, we, we just, PISA just says, yeah, we're measuring this. 
Then people believe, yes, you're measuring this. Then we just have this fantasy to say, yeah, okay, maybe you're measuring this. So that's just, <laughs> it's just conversation talking. And what I guess once you have enough power, you know, you're in marketing journalism, you have enough marketing, you keep saying that, people might believe you. And yeah. especially convince governments to do it. So a solution then, uh, something that um, something that you're suggesting in in terms of a paradigm shift, it to me or to, perhaps to the casual listener or the observer might say, well, a paradigm shift shift to where? <laughs> I mean, okay, so that's what we what we think might not be working, and we might be driving students backwards. But if I'm if I need to shift, where am I going to shift to? That, that's a beautiful question. Let's think about you know what education is today. So you have, uh, let's take Australia as an example. You have the federal government, you have Australian curriculum, then you have the, pro, pro, you know, the state curriculum, and then you have teachers teach that curriculum to students organized by age groups, and you make sure they master their curriculum. Then you have not plan to measure them, to test the students, to see how well they're doing. So that's the old paradigm. And there are many problems with that, of course. You know, one is that are we teaching students the right kind of skills and knowledge? Two, you have this massive, huge achievement gaps between Aboriginal students, students yeah. from poor, disadvantaged families in rural communities, all those places. And we've been trying to fix them. You know, we've been trying to invest in a lot. In, from, you look at Australia and I think, just think of the last 30 years, how much money have we been investing in this? How many new ways of, uh, of yeah. doing education? Yeah, all kinds of policies, changes, but NAPLAN scores have not improved over yeah. the last 10 years or 20 years. So, so what's wrong with that? Because it cannot be improved. Education as we have planned cannot be improved. What do we need to do? We need to change this. Uh, Jim Waterston, by the way, the dean at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education, we just wrote an article for uh, a journal in ASEL, uh, the uh, ASEL uh, magazine, which will publish yep. probably in September. Talk about this equity issue. So how do you deal with this? Well, first of all, we need to accept what I call human nature. Human nature is simple. Human beings are natural born learners. We are born to learn. Second, human beings are diverse learners. We have different innate talents, we have different experiences, and we have different passions, we have different cognitive styles. And third, human beings are intentional learners. Now we want to learn, we can learn, and we're different learners. So the new paradigm should be, instead of imposing a preset of conditional knowledge, content on all students, we need to start with every individual student as a self-determined learner. That is, you allow the students to drive their own learning, to operate their own learning, and then they can create a different future. So those learners will become self-determined, intentional, entrepreneurial, and creative, a new type of human individuals. And teachers and schools change accordingly to support the personalization of education for every student. That sounds almost utopian when I when I hear you talk like that. I mean, I, I like the sound of it, and when I hear it, I think, yes, that's what I want. And then I think, oh, hang on, hang on a second. When I go to the local school down the road, school starts at eight thirty, and there are bells, and there are people in the office who make sure that everyone's there, and the attendance gets measured, and then you know the books come out, and I think, wow, this is just, this is a this is an incredibly uh, 
organized uh, system that is completely embedded in our psyche and our society. How do you how do you start the discussion with the people who are trying to run these things? Because it's almost like it, it's almost as if I can see like a giant statue that's starting to break apart and crumble as we then start to build the next thing. How, what are the practical things to 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 move in that direction? What you described uh, is what people call uh, actually Tayak and Cuban call the grammar of schooling. So there's grammar of schooling. You basically have. Uh, the bells, the times, the curriculum, the courses, everything. You're right. It's extremely difficult to change. But I also want to remind you, Colin, that um, there are a lot of people who have tried different things. You know, you have uh, the Summerhill schools, Sudbury Valley schools. You have the Montessori sorry models. You have the Reggio models. You, you, even in Australia, uh, you have schools that are doing something different. You know, all since college, actually in Perth, they've mm -hmm. been doing something different recently. So it's not that it cannot be changed. It's the scale. How massive can we make the change happen? Uh, I remember uh, before Amazon, uh, you know, we had uh, Sears in the U.S. Yeah. Sears, we had a lot of, lot of those, those stores. They're probably, you know, now they are bankrupt. They are no longer. Before digital uh, technology, you, you, I mean, uh, digital cameras, do you remember how many cameras were sending, how many photos, how many of <laughs> those uh, divert machines? They all happened. Education is different. And, but it still can happen. Remember, you know, today's schooling, what you described, is really no longer than 200 years old, 150 years old. Yeah. And if we have enough people join the revolution, it can change. <laughs> it's, of course, utopian. You know, it is. But however, how fast can we change? And COVID-19 might serve as a... As a brick, as as a point, as a pivot point, that mm. people may want to change. Yeah. But again, yeah. you may be completely right. The paradigm shift is a much harder task than the improvement agenda. If you can pretend to improve, then you might improve something. But improvement agenda does not solve our education's real problems. Well, let's just come back to that comment that you made about uh, joining the revolution. I, and I've got to be careful here. I wonder if I was a headmaster or a principal that I'd be sitting in my office thinking, wait a second, I want good teachers. I want good employees. I don't want revolutionaries. How do you, how do you talk to people like that to say, look, we need to actually start a revolution? Well, um, luckily, we have uh, quite a lot of school <clears throat> districts, quite a lot of school principals uh, who are thinking differently. So I, I, at least for me, I am really working with schools who are already wanting to change. So I don't try to convince people who say, yeah, you're crazy, you're nuts, you're idiot, you're stupid. I don't, I, don't want, I don't want to do that. So I don't have time. I don't have time to do that. There's a lot of people call me crazy and, uh, and idiotic, and it's, which is fine. And uh, somebody has to be the idiot, right, to, to lead any kind of, uh, yes. you call it contrarian changes, you know. You have to be the idiot, So, so which is actually fine to me. And, uh, you know, any human condition under any human condition you will have a few people who wants to change 
you will have a lot of people who wants to maintain the status quo. You will have some people, the change may fail, the change may succeed. So what I, I do is to say, okay, I wanna bring different ideas to the discussion, at least to inspire, to work with those, with those who are just fed up mm. with the existing system, to work with those who are seeking to change. So we call the like-minded group. You know, I call those people called the paradigm shifters, you know, the shifters, you know. So, so there are people and there are, you know how, how massive education is. Yeah. Schooling. <laughs> it's huge. If you get like 10%, that's a lot of schools, a lot of students. Yeah. I once heard someone say, when trying to bring about innovative change on, on this kind of level and this kind of scale, he said, don't try to change people, just introduce new things. What do you make of that? I completely agree. That's what how that's my approach. I think you, what I would call, I always invite, uh, issue invitation to innovation, but I never impose innovation on people. Imposition is to invite in resistance. You invite people to innovation. They may like to join, they may not like to join. Everybody, you know, nowadays, everybody has their own ideas. And if they happen to like your ideas, bam, that's great. You know, if they don't, <laughs> Maybe they might ponder about it. You don't know. So I think, uh, luckily, as I told you, I've, uh, I mean, in my 50s, I have uh, had the opportunity to work with many, many people who are willing to change. Mm. Now, you say that each child has the potential and the, the need to become great. Now, I suspect that most people would agree with uh, the word potential. Yes, every child has potential. But you say that they have a need for greatness. Why, the, why that need? Why that need for greatness? Well, let's think about greatness. Greatness is really um, a term I, I kind of reused in this book called Reach for Greatness, is that everybody reaches their full potential. That's greatness. I don't know, Colin, if you have reached your full potential, who <laughs> are you, right? So, so everybody has some potential. We, we all acknowledge that. But do schools enable you to reach your full potential? If you reach your full potential, you'll be happier and you will have a rewarding job. So that's what, you know, what I was arguing. And also everyone can be great because everyone is unique. In essence, you're in your own category. You're not comparing to others. It's called self-actualization. Is that you are great in this tiny thing. You know, like, for example, you, 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 I think about marketing journalism is a good example. You have journalism, you had marketing. And if you are just kind of semi-good in journalism and semi-good in marketing, you combine them into marketing journalism, boom, you have a new potential, a new field. You combine this whole thing. So every individual has a chance to do that. But more importantly, from humanistic psychologists like uh, Abraham Maslow and to today's positive psychology, people talk about how do you become happy? Happiness comes from using your signature strength, your signature strength to create value in service of something bigger than you. You create value for other people, for the world, and that is reaching your capacity. It's called self-actualization. 
and that is how you become happy. I'd like to talk. I'd like to come back to that issue of value in just a moment. But before I do, I just want to take one more contrarian view to what you just said, because on one level, if I look around my world today, I think I could argue that I already see a lot of greatness. So advances in technology, I see, uh, you know, there are planes flying through the sky. I mean, perhaps not so many these days. Um, There are people sending rockets into space. There are doctors performing incredible surgery and performing miracles in, you know, in hospitals. Um, I, I see an enormous number of incredible things going on in the world. So isn't everything already working? It is working, but at the same time, how many people do you see doing great things on their own? How many people are simply doing certain things, doing certain jobs because ha- they have to, not because they choose to? So you know, how, how many people on the streets of Perth or Sydney or Melbourne, really, you look at them, are they really genuinely happy? Have they reached their great potential? Yeah, well, that's... <laughs> Go ahead. I mean, of course, the flip side is that there are obviously people who are in situations of disadvantage. But on the whole, I right. guess the, the conservatives amongst us might say, well, look, you know, as you say, we're just slowly improving and that's enough. And I guess, I guess that's where... Edu- I, I suspect that that's probably one of the areas where educators who are in established systems might say, well, thank you for these great, wonderful innovative utopian ideas, but the amount of incremental improvement that we're doing year by year, we think that's pretty good. But you challenge that. You say, well, we can do it even better because your focus is on the individual. Yes. I, I pay a lot of attention to individuals. Um, I was one of those individuals who came out of a, a tiny, remote Chinese village. And this was many years ago. I kept thinking back about how individuals with big dreams can be realized and everybody i'm sure you would agree had a dream yeah and that dream could become huge motivation for them to achieve something and like you were saying you know great airplanes you know we got you know elon musk sending crazy stuff into skies or, or duck holes underground you know have those things but how many you know i'm not saying that everybody has to be engaged in creating you know it's a new flying objects, but everybody doing what they're born to do, what they choose to do. You know, we also face this big challenge of uh, artificial intelligence, uh, of uh, new technologies, and they're going to replace a lot more jobs. And human beings can, and maybe will be a four, I mean, will be given uh, universal basic income. So even if you don't have to do anything, if you if you just receive, let's say, $5,000 a month in Australia, you stay at home, what are you going to do? <laughs> you got to go do something, right? I mean, that, that's a boring job, right? I mean, I don't know if you can. You sit home and watch a month of TV. That's going to drive you crazy, probably. Yeah. You got to yeah. go do something. Yeah. So, so just even being able to create a life art, music, just talking. So that, that's what I, I'm interested in, helping every human being discover, develop their talent and strength and passion and create something that's valuable to them, valuable to others, valuable to society. I'm idealistic, 
but I don't think I'm a utopian. You know, mm. I, I, I hope this ideal can drive people. Let's come back to that idea of value that you mentioned just a moment ago, uh, because I think one of the one of the strong messages that comes through in in education is that it's all about it's all about your future. It's all about you studying hard so that you can perform well in the exams, that you can get a good result, you can go to university, you can get that degree, you can have that career, and you can have that great life. What I'm hearing from you is that we do all of those things to create value for others. Now, that's, that seems to be a little bit disconnected from the message that I keep hearing from schools. Isn't it about well, students building I... value for themselves? No, uh... Your value can only be realized by the value you create for others. So it's very simple. You know, uh, you can go back to that. If you're a fish, <laughs> until someone eats you, you really have no value other than, of course, being a living organism. I mean a fish <laughs> on the market. I don't mean a fish in the ocean, right? Okay. So your value is realized by creating value for others. This is the same thing. Like, so, say, you know, Colin, you have abilities, but nobody hires you to do anything useful for others, what's, what's the value of your ability? So what I'm arguing is here is that you, every individual become unique, great, you can do things, you're valuable, but then you need to use your, va- your ability to solve problems for others. Solve problems for others, create solutions to make better the life of others and the world. And then there's a transaction. So when you do that, you are valuable. You're great valuable. And that actually then brings back to say, financially rewarding, psychologically happy. Those two things. So if you are creating value for others. So that's why the educational approach I have developed is to say, it's not about solving problems. It's about identifying problems worth solving. And then you can solve that. So that's really important. So you create value for others. That's where your value lies. I really like the notion of uh, an education that is personalizable by the child rather than for the child. And I think that's something you were just trying to introduce right at the very beginning of this discussion. Over the years, what led you to that realization? Because we often talk about individualized learning and you know special plans for students in certain circumstances but personalizable by the child that's again that's another form of that paradigm shift what what led you to that realization well just the failure of too many students like you were right just now you said well education is, is to create value for yourself to score well to go to college to be better on on ATAR all those things that's a system that basically builds success based on the failure of others you, you know, in school, schools always sort kids. You know, when children come to year one, if you cannot read, I'll give you more reading so I can get you, make your, make your life more miserable. So year two, year two, we do the same thing. You know how many children get disengaged after year four, year five? You know that, right? You know how many children? I mean, you've been to school. So I, I always pay attention to those who fail. You know, it's it's easy to pay attention to those, you know, your your valedictorians, your 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 class president. They're easy. There are a lot of students who really they're successful in the top third percent. But you look at the bottom third percent. Who are those people? Do they deserve to have this? 
if you treat them differently in school, day one, would they turn out to be the same way? So every time I go to school, I ask him, I say, how are you treating your bottom students? Mm. You know, how are you, how are you dealing with them? That's like, you know, a good society is one who knows how to take care of its poor. It's disadvantaged. It's sick people. Yeah. Not how to take care of, you know, you know, like for example, America, we don't need social systems to take care of Bill Gates. You know, we, 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 we you know, you don't need a, a social welfare for them. Right. Yeah. Every school, we need to do that. And then through, of course, lots of kind of research, lots of kind of work, I realized personalizable because school systems set up a, is, is a system that works for some people that works against some people. So let's say, let's say I'm a teacher and I'm listening to this conversation and it's starting to resonate and it's starting to get me a little bit excited or a little bit uncomfortable. And I think, yes, I want the paradigm to change too. I'm in, I've, I'm sold, I'm in, but I'm on my own. Oh, what do I do now? And oh my goodness, now I've got a I've got a six period day today, and I've got I'm very busy tomorrow, and I've got meetings the next day. Maybe I'll think about being innovative next week. Maybe the paradigm shift can start happening next term. Or, but I really want it to happen today. How does a teacher make sense of that tension and that frustration? And when can they start? Well, I think many teachers have the freedom, you know, uh, to actually do a, a lot more. You know, I agree that the true paradigm shift needs to change from ACARA to the education system, to the principal, to the entire. Unless you can find a school that has changed, you are on your own. If you are on your own, I would the, the strongest advice I would give is to say, look at the student, look less at the curriculum. Look at who this person you're teaching, not what you have to teach. What you have to teach, maybe a government mandate, that changes, yeah. you know, have different governments mandate different things. But honestly, look at the growth, the confidence, the enjoyment of the person in front of you. You can do that. A teacher can do that. And we've seen that in actually I have a book that collects a lot of stories like different teachers, different school systems, different students creating paradigm shift. This book is called uh, um, An Education Crisis is a Terrible Thing to Waste. It was actually published in 2019. Yep. We collect the stories in Australia, we collect stories in the US. So the advice I strongly give you is to look at the student as a human being. That then focuses in on the idea that you as the teacher, if you then start to look at the student rather than the curriculum, I guess that would then prompt you to think, what value can I create for that person? And that comes back to that thing we were just talking about before. I'm trying to create value for others. Exactly. I think a human being, I, I like to treat teachers as human beings. We're human educators. We're not teaching machines. We're not teaching machines. So what's, look, this. I think it would be fair to say that there's a lot of conservatism in the system. Look, there's conservatism yes. everywhere, right? So, uh, it's it's and it's not just in education. So let's just say that uh, there it, it will be around, and people will come up against it. What's if you're if you're trying to make that shift, and you've you've made that realization? What's your defense then against conservatism? How do you react to that? How do you how do you navigate 
with uh, in that situation? Well, I, you know, I don't think I'm necessarily progressive. I, I think I'm quite conservative. I'm my conser- conservatism is to say, let's protect human nature. So, but anyway, I, I know I know what you mean. Uh, I just try to ignore them. You know, uh, <laughs> human society is so diverse, and there's no reason to argue against others. You know, again, you know, a lot of people pick battles with me, and uh, it's like, yeah, okay. I mean, if you are really interested in engaging a conversation, I'm happy to debate. And but if you're simply trying to say, well, that doesn't work, unless you bring evidence, unless you bring logic, I'm not going to just you know deal with it. <laughs> you know, so I think it's uh, again, society is so huge. You know, we are seven billion, eight billion people. You know, ideas should fly freely and for people to judge. Yeah. And I have been, again, fortunate to say I have found people who have similar ideas in almost every country I've visited. Europe, China, US, South America, every place you find somebody who seems, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. So it's about finding your people. I think so. So... Let's say then that you you are this teacher and you're on your own and 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 you're looking for help and the the help that you need is not in your immediate uh, it's not, it's not in your immediate environment it's not necessarily in the in the school system that you might be in where can people go to go outside their boundaries beyond beyond their local environment either physically or intellectually to 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 get help this is a great time to do this, you know. Uh, and, and of course, you know, I would welcome people to follow my Twitter, which I don't tweet much. I just forward other people's messages, you know. <laughs> and uh, there are a lot of quite uh, uh, now, really, uh, right now, webinars, um, conferences, and different groups. Uh, I would say from there are tens of thousands of innovation groups. Everybody thinks they're inventing a new future, but they're all about paradigm shift. And uh, so uh, there's a lot of books you can read, uh, but mainly I think uh, there are a lot of teachers who would agree with me to say, look at the child. So online resources, you know, you can just search for innovation, personalization, personalizable. It's a lot of them, a lot of them. So I don't think teachers will be, have any trouble uh, trying not finding the information they need if they want to. Well, Yong, this has been a, a really inspirational conversation. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed our time this morning or this afternoon for you, of course. So uh, thank you so much for your time. It's been great. Thank you. I hope uh, that inspiration can go a long way. Thank you very much, Colin. You've been listening to Central Station. If you're inspired by Yong's message and you think a friend or colleague would also be inspired, then please share this episode with them. For more information about Yong and his publications, you can visit his website, zaolearning.com, and that link is in the description for this episode. And for more great stories from educators around Australia and the world, make sure you subscribe to Central Station wherever you listen. This podcast is brought to you by Central. To find out more, visit the website, central.com.au. I'm Colin Klupik. Thanks for listening.